wherein Paul is addressing and answering one by one questions that the Corinthians had uh, written to him seeking greater understanding on some areas uh, where they lacked understanding. And so uh, the first question that they asked was concerning marriage. And Paul spent um, the entirety of chapter 7 dealing with issues concerning Christian marriage. But by the time we now come to chapter 8, he begins addressing the second question uh, that they asked him. And again, it's kind of like the game of Jeopardy, wherein we don't know exactly what the question was, but we can pretty much figure it out based upon uh, the answer that he now gives. And so they wrote to him concerning one specific issue that they were facing in the city of Corinth that presented a challenge for them as Christians. But in answering the question, the Apostle Paul broadens the spectrum a little bit and he addresses a much wider arena of things that touch every Christian and every generation, and that is the issue of the gray matters in the Christian faith. And there are certainly gray matters uh, when it comes to the Christian faith. And so that would be beliefs and behaviors about which the Bible is not explicitly clear. What is right and what is wrong when it comes to questions of morality or questions of Christian spirituality when the Bible doesn't spell it out for us in black and white, non-essential things, if you would. You say, well, what kinds of things uh, would that be? Well, if we look at it under the banner of behaviors, it would be things that we, we know about, that we talk about, things like uh, drinking or drinking wine, things like uh, smoking and the use of tobacco or of caffeine and coffee or dancing, which really isn't maybe so much a, an issue today as it was in, in other generations of the church. The way that believers dress and, and, and show themselves in public, the things that we watch and give ourselves to in terms of how we're entertained or amused, the things that we eat or how much we eat, things uh, of that nature, where we work or what we do for work, some of the maybe more questionable things that we can find ourselves involved in in our industry or seeking to uh, eke out a living within this world. Sometimes it comes under the question of is this that I am doing or where I'm working um, right in the eyes of God? the way that we spend our money and the way that we relate with material things. All of these things possess with them a little bit of what we would call a gray area, wherein sometimes we might say that, well, this is wrong, and sometimes we might say that it is right. Sometimes we might look at the Bible and say, well, the Bible says this is wrong. And then we look at other parts of the Bible and we say, well, the Bible says this is okay. And so how do we as individual Christians navigate through uh, these things that are kind of not spelled out specifically by God. The other thing that constitutes a gray area are, are matters of doctrine or matters of belief um, when it comes to uh, denominational creed, the things that we as uh, Christians among ourselves disagree about, um, things like uh, other doctrines like Calvinism versus Arminianism or uh, eternal security versus uh, the other side of that, that you can lose your salvation, uh, issues concerning heaven and hell, doctrines concerning end times when uh, Jesus comes back, all things that maybe are, are not so clear in the Bible that we can prove our point with uh, such sureness. Music and worship style within the church, whether it's, it should be liturgical or whether it should be more contemporary. The day of the week in which we might worship on. How much we as Christians should engage the culture. Should we be separate from it uh, and, and undefiled or should we engage in it? And where is the line that you cross in becoming all things to all people? Um, what we celebrate in terms of the holidays, Christmas and Easter, you know, is that really right? Are we caving or bowing to pagan things and some of that that we give ourselves to uh, along with the traditions and the rituals. And so it, we, we come always as Christians to places where we find ourselves in the gray and we say, well, God, what would you have? What's right and wrong in this? So what Paul does in this chapter is that he takes hold of one issue that they were facing there in the city of Corinth that captures really both belief and behavior all in one 
and he applies it to every situation that we might face in our day and age that touch these types of things. And it's fitting that he would have to deal with this question from the city of Corinth, which was a place that was so filled with worldliness and so much idolatry, but that makes it very useful for us, doesn't it? And so he begins now with the topic in chapter 8, verse 1, and he says this. He says, now, as touching things offered unto idols. As old as Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel, man has shown his devotion to God through sacrifice. When God first met with Adam after he had sinned, God himself showed Adam that that was the way in which he would approach unto God. God came and he took a lamb that was without blemish in a time when everything was without blemish. And God slew that lamb, shedding its blood, the innocent in exchange for the guilty, And then he clothed Adam and Eve with the skins of that lamb. It was very crystal clear in their understanding. God said, in the day you eat, you will surely die. But God provided a substitute that day, and the innocent lamb died in their place. Of course, that's a picture for us, you and I, we understand it clearly, of the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. God providing his son as the perfect innocent sacrifice that would qualify to take away our sins. But ever since that time, man has been given by God that way of approaching him in worship through a sacrifice of an innocent substitute. Now, also from that time, every man that is sought to worship any God, even a false God, has approached that God in that same way, through the offering of a lamb or of an animal, a sacrifice given to God, seeking then to please God. So in Corinth, in a place that was so incredibly given to idolatry, a place where there was a pantheon of gods and everyone ascribed some deity that they followed or worshipped, there was temples and there were offerings that were constantly being made by people unto their gods. Now, the byproduct of those offerings is that there was a surplus of very cheap meat. Because when you would offer a sacrifice to your God, a portion of that would go to you, and a portion of it would go to the temple. And then you would eat your portion, and it was symbolic that you were fellowshipping or communing with the God that you were sacrificing to. But there was way more meat that was being absorbed by these temple institutions than what they could eat or use. And so what they created were what were called temple shambles or temple markets. And a citizen of that city could come to these markets, anyone could, and for a very discounted rate, they could buy very good, high-quality meat because when people would sacrifice, they would bring the best of the best to their gods. And so rather than paying, which was what would be the market rate in a regular market, you could go to the shambles and you could buy good meat for much less. But that for a Christian created a little bit of a moral dilemma. If I want to save some money and buy good meat in the shambles, then I'm being a good steward with the money that God's provided. On the other hand, the money that I am spending and giving to these people is being used for the sake of propagating wickedness, funding idolatry, and spreading lies. And so is it morally acceptable by God for me to go buy cheap meat when the money that I'm paying for that meat is going to be used for wickedness or for evil things? Is it okay for a Christian to buy meat from the shambles? And so what Paul's going to do in answering this question, and by the way, he's going to take three chapters to do it, and we won't get through all three tonight. You can thank God for that. We'll get through one and a half tonight and one and a half next week, Lord willing. But what Paul's going to do over these three chapters while he answers this question is that, first of all, he's going to bring light and clarity to the issue. He's going to pick it apart piece by piece very quickly, and he's going to show what each factor in all of this is, and he's going to explain it to us. Then he's going to give the answer to the moral dilemma. He's going to tell them what's the right thing to do. Then he's going to address not what's right and wrong in these things, the gray areas, but rather he's going to address how a Christian should think in terms of handling or navigating the gray areas of the Christian life. And then in chapter 9, he's going to talk about 
his example, why he does what he does, and then in chapter 10, he's going to give a stern warning to them related to this issue. And so he begins by shedding light and bringing clarity to the issue at hand uh, as we move on in verse 1. He says this. He says, we know concerning these things offered to idols. He says, we know that we all have knowledge. That is, we all can ascribe to facts. Every one of us can do homework and figure something out or read a a verse or a commentary or listen to an opinion of a teacher. And, And we can assent, every one of us, to an opinion or come to knowledge concerning something. But what Paul says about knowledge is he says that knowledge puffeth up. But contrastingly, he says charity or love, that's agape love, edifies. So he starts right off the bat by making a contrast between the things that we know, which puff us up and make us appear and look full and complete and mature, and love, which he says doesn't puff up or make you appear to be something, but rather love edifies. So take the two descriptions that he gives. One is puffed up, and the other is built up or edified. If someone is puffed up, you know, you can picture it right now, the little kid who has to face the bully on the playground. And so he goes up that, you know, in, in all of his courage, and he takes the biggest breath in that he can, and then he puffs out his chest the best he can. He tries to make himself look bigger than he actually is because he knows he doesn't have a chance of intimidating the bigger person otherwise. That's the idea. Paul says you can gain knowledge about doctrine, about all of these things, but all that knowledge is ever going to do for you is make you look bigger than you actually are. Love, on the other hand, sincere love that comes from God, originates from God, love edifies. And the difference between being edified and being puffed up is that edification is an actual substance that is building you up on the inside and making you greater by degrees, and howbeit slowly, than what you were before. One is on the outside in appearance. The other is from the inside, and it's actual and real. And so the contrast between the two. You can approach this subject of gray areas with knowledge and doctrine and verses and commentaries and teachings and opinions, or... You can be affected by the love of God on the inside and you can draw your conclusions in these things from that source instead. That's where he's going with this description. He says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And then he says this, verse two. And if any man thinks that he knows anything, that's knowledge, he knoweth nothing yet as he ought to know. How many of you can say amen to the statement, the more I know, the less I know? Oftentimes we talk here in the fellowship, um, just as we have conversations either amongst leaders or with people in the body, and we talk about teenagers that are kind of wayward, early 20s, middle 20s type of things, and people will say, oh, I'm just so concerned. They're in their 20s now, they're out of college, and they're just not really walking with the Lord, and they're doing stupid things, and... And and oftentimes in these things, because I'm not that far removed from that part of my life, I I always say, you know, I give people a pass in in a way in in their 20s. Because I say, don't you remember when you were 20 and you knew everything? I mean, I really did. I really, really understood everything when I was in my middle 20s. And then I suffered a little bit and went through a little bit of life and, you know, had a couple kids and, and you go through all that and you realize that you don't know quite as much as you think you know. And there's another one of those things where life is kind of like a kaleidoscope. You know, you're, you're kind of looking through the lens and everything's turning and, and you hit your 20s and it's almost like you're looking around and you're like, you know, I pretty much got this all figured out. The blues are over there. The greens are over there. This is where the shapes are. This is kind of like the star thing in the middle. And this is all good. I can't figure out why everybody else in the world is having such a hard time. This really isn't that complicated. And then, you know, you go in all of your confidence and the kaleidoscope turns a little bit and everything changes. And the ground is kind of pulled out from underneath you. And you hit your 30s and your 40s and your 50s and you begin to go, what in the world's really going on on this planet anyways? And none of it actually makes sense. And Paul says that's exactly what life is like by design and by the intent of God. Because we're never to rest upon what we think we know. He says if any man thinks that he knows something, he knows nothing 
even as he ought, the quicker you can come to the place where you realize that you don't have it all figured out, the happier you'll be. You say, well, what in the world are we supposed to do then? He gives the answer. He says, but, in verse 3, if any man loves God, then the same is known of him or known by him. That if any person can come to their senses to a wise realization that God is and that he's worthy of my life and I'm going to give to him my love and my affection, then the great and immediate byproduct of that position of my life is that I'm going to be known by him. And once I'm known by him, it removes the burden from me of having to know everything because the one who does know everything has his hand upon my life. And so concerning God's knowing of me, the confidence and the surety that that brings me is that God alone can see into the heart if it is devoted to him. If my heart is truly his and I love the Lord, then he can see that my heart is devoted to him and he alone can see the position of that heart. Therefore, listen, this is an important therefore, the specific or individual actions, behaviors, and beliefs that I ascribe as a Christian do not reveal whether or not I truly love the Lord or not. Meaning, I might be on the wrong side of a gray area that you hold with conviction. And you look at my life, you in your life, you say, this is absolute, this is the will of God. And then you look at my life, and you see that I don't live according to that conviction upon that gray area. And you come to the conclusion based upon your observation of what you see in my life that I must not be walking with God the right way. Well, he doesn't really know God. Look at the way he's living his life. But I'm not subject to what you see in my life. I'm subject to what God sees in my life. And if God sees that my heart is truly inclined to him and that my way is set towards him, then he accepts me in that position where I am. And so knowledge that someone has about why this is wrong or what scripture it is that proves this is wrong doesn't make me accountable to that because I might not be there yet in my Christian life. If I love God, then I am known of God. And that's where Paul begins to, to, to bring this argument. He's saying, listen, God knows. In Romans chapter 14, where this issue is addressed to the Roman church, Paul says to them, he says, who are you to judge another man's servant? Before his own master, he stands or falls. Therefore, do not judge. And then he describes gray areas, food, drink, holy days, ways that people worship. He says, you don't understand everything. So don't judge another man's servant. Now he gives the answer to the issue. He says, as concerning, therefore, the eating of those things that are offered in sacrifice unto idols. We know, so here's knowledge, that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is none other God but one. As Christians, we understand that there is one God and that our one God is seated far above all principalities, all powers, all that is called God's lowercase g or called Lord's within the world and that there's nothing that touches his person or his power. And so Paul says, we know that an idol is absolutely nothing in the world. I love the description that's given in Psalm chapter 15. I would encourage that you read it at some point, where the psalmist describes those that worship false gods. He says that they form these little statues and idols out of wood or out of stone. They have hands, but they can't handle. They have eyes, but they can't see. They have ears, but they can't hear. And then he says, they that make them or worship them are like unto them. You are like what you worship. And if they're dead and you're worshiping them, then what does that make you? Spiritually dead. And so Paul looks at all of that and he says, listen, they might have ornate temples. They might have statues and shrines. They might have thousands of people flocking to their services week in and week out. And they might have money beyond what you can ever imagine. He says, but we know that the idol is nothing. It's all for nothing. It's all in vain. It's just superstition. He says the idol is nothing in the world, but there's none other God but one. For though there be that are called gods, lowercase g, whether in heaven or earth, as there be gods many, many idols, 
and lords many, lowercase l. That was the big conflict in the day, is that there was many gods in the pantheon, and Caesar was considered lord. That was kind of the anthem of the citizens of the Roman Empire, that Caesar was lord. That's why Christians were so heavily persecuted, because they claimed the lordship of Christ. And if someone said that Jesus was lord, that was an affront to the lordship of Caesar. He was a lowercase l, but Jesus is the uppercase. He says, but to us there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. Howbeit, Paul says, there is not in every man that knowledge. In other words, we know as Christians, mature, complete believers, we know that there's no power or life within those idols. However, Paul says, don't forget that not every Christian has come to that realization of knowledge yet to understand that there's nothing behind the idol's temple or the idol's name. Not everyone has that kind of knowledge. For some, he says, with conscience of the idol, unto this hour eat it, the meat sold in the shambles, as a thing offered unto an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. He says there are some people so sensitive to wanting to please God and to what that meat and that money represents and goes to, that if they were to eat that meat, then their conscience would be defiled and they would experience in their spirit the feeling of separation from God. It would break their fellowship with him because they would sin against their conscience. He's going to come back to that in just a minute. But here's the answer to whether or not it's right or wrong. Paul, tell us. Is it right or wrong to eat meat sold in the shambles? Here it is in verse 8. He says, But meat commendeth us not to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, neither if we eat not are we the worse. He says, listen, here's the answer. Meat is meat. And if they're stupid enough to sell you meat at half the price that they can get because of the sacrifices, then save your money, go buy the steak, and enjoy it. There's nothing wrong uh, with buying that meat. Go do it. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying that it, meat does not commend us to God in this. So whether you partake or whether you abstain, it is absolutely indifferent. Now listen, this applies to almost every gray area in our lives, if not every gray area in our lives. And that is that the answer to say, is this okay or is this not okay? The answer is that before God, it's okay. You say, wait a minute, really? Well, is it? What is the answer? Smoking? Drinking? What we wear? The speech that comes out of our mouth? The way that we worship God? Is it really acceptable no matter what? Listen, it's important that we understand that we are not under the law. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, the Apostle Paul describes our freedom from the law in this way. He says, And you, being dead in your trespasses and sins, or in the sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, has he made alive together with him, that is Christ, having forgiven you all trespasses. All of your sins have been forgiven. And here's how, verse 14. Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Let no man therefore judge you in meat, that's food, or drink, or in respect of a holy day, or of the new moon, or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. In other words, what Paul is saying is this is that when Jesus Christ completed his mission on the cross and died and rose again, what he did is that he took the law that was against you and I and he nailed it to the cross, separating us from the standard of it and from meeting the standard of the law. And therefore, according to what Paul wrote to the Galatians, we are set free from that law. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, it says, it is for freedom that we have been set free. We're free from that law. 
And therefore, Paul will say in another place, as we move on in Corinthians, he's going to say that all things are lawful to us. We're free. You say, but wait a minute. What about the darkness? I mean, what about the fact that that money is going to be used for wicked things? Does God just turn a blind eye to that? What about where maybe drinking alcohol will lead someone who's a Christian or where what you know some of those questionable behaviors what about the darkness that's associated with those things paul you're not addressing that you're simply saying that that it's okay what's the deal with that i mean what do you do and think about it in in the day that we live in there was a rumor that was going around um a while back you ever heard of edible arrangements you know they they make the fruit baskets that look like flowers beautiful things and there was a rumor going around that the the people that owned that uh, corporation were islamic uh you know um, insurgents and they were taking the money that they were making and they were funding al-Qaeda and killing Christians and it, Snopes picked it up and it was all false. It was just a total sham. You know, it wasn't a true story. But for a while, it was a big thing. Like, don't get edible arrangements. You're funding terrorism if you do that. You know, it's like, oh, it's like the perfect gift. I don't know what to do. I, <laughs> I, 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 do, do I do it? Do I not do it? You see the images of the people in China that put the iPhones together and you realize what they're making and the conditions that they're working under. And the question comes up, well, for a Christian, well, can I, should I do that? Am I, am, I, am I condoning that type of labor? And if I have an iPhone, you know, and, and what do I do about that? And then sometimes other things hit us. You know, people come to us and they say, oh, you put up a Christmas tree? Do you realize what you're giving yourself to? Do you realize what you're bringing into your home, what that represents? Do you you understand the idolatry, the Babylonian symbolism that's involved in that? You know, I love it. People say that to me. Sometimes I'll respond and I'll say, what's the day of the week? And they'll say, Wednesday. And I'll say, do you realize that you just ascribed the day to a pagan god? Because the days of the week are named after pagan gods. Sunday is after the sun god. Monday is after the moon you know, Thursday is after Thor, the god of war. Friday after Frigga, the god of sensuality. Saturday is Saturn or Saturnalia, the god of revelry. I mean, they're all named after pagan deities. How about the months of the year? Do you operate in that? January, Janus, the god who looks forward and back, depicted with the two faces. You know, Mars, March, Mars, you know, and it's so on and so forth. I mean, where do you draw the line then in these things? And so what do we do? What's the answer? How do we deal with this darkness in the whole thing? The answer is this. What God is looking for from you and I is he's looking for a relationship and not a religion. A religion says, God, give me the checklist and make this like the DMV where I know exactly what I'm to do and what not to do. I can check everything off and at the end of the day every night, I can look at it all and I can say, I did everything by the letter exactly the way that you wanted. God says, I'm never gonna let my relationship with you sink to that level where it's nothing more than a checklist of do's and don'ts. You say, then what are we to do? Here's what you're to do. You're to seek him for yourself about the things in your life that he would have you do or not do. To the Ephesians, the apostle would say this in Ephesians chapter 5. He would say, in verse 5, he would say, For you know this, that no whoremonger, no unclean person or covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of God and of Christ. So right there, there's some black and white, isn't it? He says, let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things comes the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Be not ye therefore partakers with them. For you were sometimes darkness in the past, but now are you light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Now listen, here's the answer, verse 10. He says, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. And then he goes on, have no fruitful or fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. And then he, in verse 15, and you'll have to skip a few if it's all on the screen, but I have to get through this passage. He says, verse 15, he says, see then that you, that's us, walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Wherefore, be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. He says, 
proving what is acceptable to the Lord. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul says in verse 21, he gives this very quick admonition. He says, prove all things. In other words, what God wants us to do is he wants us to seek him for these things in our life that we don't know what we're supposed to do and we're to prove according to his word and what he teaches us through the Bible and also what he gives to us in prayer and what he works with in our conscience so that we ourselves can walk in the way that God has for our lives. And here's what I've discovered as a Christian walking with the Lord now for some years is that I've noticed that these convictions about things in the gray areas can change, can't they? There are things that I once disallowed and said, God would never accept this in my life, but I've come to prove that some of those things are okay. And there have been other things in my life that I have allowed and said, well, certainly this is a freedom and a liberty that I have that God has since shown otherwise within my life and said, this might be okay for someone else, but it certainly is not okay for you, Pastor Nick. So sit down. (laughs) And God certainly has the right to do that within our lives, doesn't he? In the book of Hebrews chapter 5, it talks about Christians that were infants when they should be mature. And he says, the writer of Hebrews, to those Christians, he says, for when for this time you should be teachers, he said, you're still drinking milk. And when for the time that you should know the deeper things of the Christian faith, you're still in need of the foundational things because you haven't grown. And Paul says those that use milk are unskillful in the word, they're babies. But he says this, and listen carefully. He says, but strong meat, the meat of the word, is for those that are of full age or mature who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. In other words, as we're walking through this life as Christians and we come upon a behavior or an area where we don't know what is right, we take that area to the word of God and to prayer and then we walk through it And then we follow what God does in our hearts and what he brings to our understanding through his revelation as we walk through it and we let it build within us a discernment over whether or not that is good and right. Now, what that means is that sometimes we're going to get it wrong, but it's important for us to get it wrong, isn't it? Because it's not in getting it right all the time that we discern what's right and wrong. It's in getting it wrong and right that we then can look at both and evaluate and say, that is right in this situation and that is wrong, at least for my life. And that's what God wants. My wife, sometimes there are things that don't make sense. Like today. She realized that when the kids, the babies, this is the two youngest boys, play with water, they're content. So what she did is she went to the dining room table and she took two big bowls of water and filled them and then put the boys there and filled the bowls with toys and gave them a bath outside. And not, not a bath, but she let them play with water in the dining room as though they were playing in the bathtub. Now, she told me this, and she said it worked out great. She said they were so happy, they were so content, and it didn't, she said it actually worked. It didn't make a mess. They didn't spill water all over. But I'm listening to her tell me this. I I said, you you did what? (laughs) Wait, what? You, you, what? (laughs) You know, but that's actually has nothing to do with the Bible study. I just had to say that, because I I just can't believe that happened, you know. And I can't believe it worked. (laughs) But one of the other things that she does, and this doesn't make sense, but it does, is that sometimes she will uh, expose the kids almost on purpose to someone who has a cold. And the reason why she does that is because in catching that cold, at least to some degree, it builds their immunity so as they can stand stronger against those same things in the future. And so when they catch a sniffle or a cough, I go, oh, Oh no, we're not going to sleep for a week. You know, she goes, "Oh good." You know, because it's she's looking out for their long-term good interests, I'm looking out for right now. I believe our heavenly Father does the same thing with us. He watches us and we walk into a gray area. Oh, should I should I be drinking wine as a Christian? Is that something that's acceptable or okay? Is it okay for me to be using certain substances, not bad substances, but certain substances? How far can I go in a relationship? Things that, Lord, what do you really want in this? And he says, I'm going to watch how they go through this gray area. 
And then what happens is he watches us, and because we're carnal and sinful and stupid, he watches us begin to go the wrong way in the gray area. And he doesn't immediately send Gabriel or, you know, someone else. to. He, he just says, watch this, and we'll watch this. And we go into it, and we get walloped. We get nailed by, by what it is. We think it was innocent. We think it was good. We think it was okay. It could be a doctrine, something that we believe. It could be a teacher that we listen to that's teaching the Bible, but they're not really teaching the right things. And we get into something, and it's almost like we're catching a spiritual cold. And then what happens is we walk down that path for a little while, and we begin to see the negative fruit in our life that that brings, and God wakes us up at a moment, we evaluate, and we say, I'm, I'm on the wrong side of this. And so we say, God, set me right in it, and we get on the right side of it, and now what's happened is that we've gained discernment over something. It's not a checklist, something that we read in the Bible, and we say, I'm just going to do that. But we've experienced it. We've lived in it. We've walked through it. And now our immunity is built up. And now the reason why I have this conviction that this is right or wrong is not because I heard it in church or because this person has been walking with Christ longer than me said so or I read it in a book. It's because I have lived life enough to see what works and what doesn't work. And I choose God to do things your way. Thank you for teaching me that. And God says, see, immunity. Nailed it. And he's a wise father. And he's interested in relationship within our lives. And so as we walk with him, we formulate convictions based upon our relating to him and our knowledge of him that then lead us in the right way and what he has for our lives. But what that means is that sometimes something that's okay for you is not okay for me. And something that's okay for me is not okay for you. So how then do we deal with that issue if both things are acceptable before God? That's what he gets into. This is crazy, isn't it? I sound like the guy from The Princess Bride, don't I? I certainly can't choose the wine in front of you, you know. (laughs) Notice what he says as we move on in verse 9. Because there is a reason why this matters. He says, but take heed lest by any means this liberty of yours, the freedom that you have maybe to partake in something like meat from the temple, become a stumbling block to them that are weak. It is possible, what Paul is saying in this, for something that is perfectly allowable of God in your life that is not allowable in someone else's life to actually become a stumbling block for them and you're hindering their progress and growth as a Christian because of the things that you're doing. He says, for if, and here's how it works, any man see you which has knowledge sitting at meat or down to eat in the idol's temple, Shall not the conscience of him which is weak be emboldened to eat those things which are offered to idols? And through your knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? But when you sin so against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Wherefore, if meat or food makes my brother to stumble, I will eat no flesh while the world stands, lest I cause my brother to stumble. Paul says, I've been walking with Christ for a long time and there's a lot of things in my life that I've grown through and to realize that this is perfectly acceptable to God. I can buy this meat or an iPhone or an edible arrangement or Nikes or whatever it is. I can do these things and it is of no consequence to God at all. But I've also learned that there are some people that are so sensitive in this area of conviction that if they see me, a more mature Christian, doing these things, that they're going to be emboldened to do it also when they haven't grown internally to that place of maturity. And it's going to cause them to sin because their conscience being weak will be defiled. And if that happens, that my liberty causes you to sin, now I've sinned. Christ is upset. He says, I've sinned against Christ through the exercising of a liberty that I have. And so Paul says, I choose Not because I can't eat meat, not because I can't drink wine, not because I can't do these things. I do not do these things because of the negative effect that it might have on others. Now he uses himself as an example. Watch this. He says, am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are not you my work in the Lord? He proves that he's an apostle. If I be not an apostle unto others, yea, doubtless I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. 
The fact that you exist as a church and as believers are proof that God has called me. He's working in my life. He's for me. I have his favor. And so he says, my answer to those that do examine me is this. So here's what Paul's getting at here. He's saying, listen, I'm free. I'm an apostle. I have liberty. I can exercise it in these things. But yet I hold a very high standard when it comes to the things that I allow in my life and the things that I don't allow within my life. And so when people ask me about that and they come like they come to us and they say, you can't drink wine. You're a Christian. You can't go to the club. You're a Christian. You can't do this. Paul says people say that to me all the time. And this is the answer that I give to them. He says, listen, do I not have power or authority or freedom to eat and to drink? That is the meat of the shambles or to drink wine. Or verse five, have we not power, the apostles that is, to lead about a sister, a wife, or a wife that is a sister in the Lord, as well as other apostles and as the brothers of the Lord and Cephas, that would be James and Jude who were married apparently, and Peter who was married, we know that he was, Paul was not. He says, or, number three, third example, or I only and Barnabas, have we not power to forbear working? In other words, we could be, if we wanted to, supported by the ministry. He says, we have that right. So he lists three areas where he has the right and the liberty and the freedom to do something. He has the right to eat and to drink. He has the right to be married. Interesting that he would consider that a gray area in his life, isn't it? And number three, he says, we have power to draw, draw money or a salary from the ministry. Now, what he does is he takes that third example of taking a salary from the ministry. And what he does is he proves beyond any reasonable doubt that he has the right before God to draw a salary from the ministry. He doesn't take a salary from the ministry as we're going to discover, but he's going to say, I have the right to do it and I can prove it. He says this in verse seven, he gives three natural reasons. He says, who goes to warfare or who goes into battle as a soldier any time at his own charges or his own expenses? Nobody goes into to fight for a country and pays their own way to fight. You're supported if you go in and you fight within a, a country's military and you stand with their army. That's just plain reason. And in this ministry that he found himself in, we're fighting in the Lord's army. He says, we don't pay. We don't have to pay our own way. He says, or example number two, who plants a vineyard or a garden and doesn't eat the fruit thereof? You know, if we're working in God's garden, then we would have the right, Paul would say, to eat from the fruit of that garden. Example number three, or who feeds a flock, a shepherd, and eats not the milk of the flock? If you keep a flock, then you're entitled to reap the benefits. Of, of what it means to do that. You can take the milk from the flock. Now he gives three spiritual reasons, not just the soldier, the farmer, and the shepherd, but now he go, takes it to the Bible. He says, say I these things as a man, or doesn't the law say the same thing also? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the mouth of the ox that treads out the corn. Paul had a very high estimation of himself. He says, I'm just God's ox. But he takes the scripture from Deuteronomy chapter 25 and he says, listen, does God take care for oxen? He says that back at the end of verse nine. He's like, no, God didn't write that because he wants us to know how to take care of our cows. There's a spiritual principle behind that precept. The, the principle is this, is saying, listen, if someone is laboring in a field, let them eat of the gleanings of the field while they're working within it. That's why God wrote that. That's the whole purpose for that scripture. Does, he says, or does he say it all together for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written, that he that plows, that is in God's vineyard, should plow in hope. And he that threshes or reaps or harvests in God's vineyard in hope, he should be partaker of his hope. Then example number two, spiritually, he says, if we have sown unto you spiritual things, is it a great thing if we shall reap your carnal things? In other words, it's just plain human gratitude that if my ministry has in some way blessed or benefited your life, then it would just make sense for you 
to want to give to me because of what I've given to you. That's just plain gratitude. That happens every day in spiritual things. When you're enriched, you just want to give back. There's a feeling of gratitude. It's not obligation. It's compulsory. I've got to do this because I just feel like I've got to do something by way of response to this. He says, we've sown spiritual things that we, we could reap carnal things. He says, if others be partakers of this power over you, are not we rather? Nevertheless, we have not used this power or liberty or freedom but we suffer all things lest we should hinder the gospel of Christ. He's going to come back to that in just a moment. But he gives one more proof that it would be acceptable. He says, Do you not know that they which minister about holy things live from the holy things of the temple? And they which wait at the altar are partakers with the altar. Even so has the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live off the gospel. Now, what Paul has just done is he has proved with absolute clarity and authority that it is acceptable, that it is biblical, and that it is right for him to get paid for his work as an apostle. It would be the same thing for me to make my case to you scripturally, naturally, in every way that I can, that something that I'm doing in a gray area is acceptable by God. But Paul does not use this argument to justify taking a salary. And the reason is because he didn't take a salary, though he could have rightly taken a salary. He says in verse 15, he says, but I have used none of these things. Neither have I written these things that it should be so done unto me. For it were better for me to die than that any man should make my glorying void. The honor that comes from not charging you a dime for my ministry among you. Now it's worth noting that there were times that Paul did receive wages. This wasn't something that he did in every place, but in Corinth, he absolutely would not take a dime. He supported himself for every moment of the year and a half that he was with them. He did not receive a salary from them. He even said to Timothy that, hey, if you have an elder that's serving under you that labors in the word, then pay him double. So Paul wasn't against a minister taking a salary. But he says, in the city of Corinth, which was a very affluent city and could have afforded to pay Paul very well, he says, I didn't take a dime. And he says, and I'm not saying this so that you give me anything. I wouldn't take it. I'd rather die than take money from you. He says, so that you can't take away the honor that, I'm, that I have in not taking money. And then he gives his reason, verse 16. He says, for though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of. In other words, the honor is not in, in, in what I'm doing in preaching the gospel. He says, for necessity is laid upon me. The reason why I preach the gospel is because there's a drive that's deep inside planted by God. He says, woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. He says, I'm so driven by God to preach that if I didn't preach, I'd be miserable. I'd be a wretch. I wouldn't know what to do with my life. There'd be no purpose for me on earth. I'm driven. Something from the inside compels me to preach. I've got to preach. So I'm not doing it for the money. And then he says, but even if I do this thing willingly, he says, I have a reward, but if I do it against my will, then a dispensation of the gospel is committed unto me, or a stewardship, a responsibility has been laid upon me. And so even if I'm not driven internally, I've still got to preach because God's given me his word and he's given me a calling and I've got to be obedient unto that calling. So my glorying isn't in the calling. I'm doing that for other reasons. So why then would I not take wages? Here's what it is, verse 18. He says, what is my reward then? Verily, truly, that when I preach the gospel, I may make the gospel of Christ without charge, that I can make it free so that I abuse not my power in the gospel. In other words, I am not going to use liberty that I have because of the message it sends to you when I don't use that liberty. Let's bring it back to you and I who are not apostles and are not ministering in the city of Corinth. What in the world does it mean? Paul says this. He says, I have the liberty to exercise freedom in gray areas, wine, 
beer, cigarettes. We all know our own gray areas and what they are. He says, I could do it if I wanted. He says, part of the reason that I don't do it is because of the effect that it has on the reputation of the gospel for those that look on. Paul says, for me to receive a salary in the city of Corinth would give unbelievers an excuse not to believe. They would say he's just in it for the money. That's why he's doing what he's doing. But what I'm doing is I'm removing their ability to make that claim. They cannot say that because I'm not taking any money for the ministry that I'm giving to you. And therefore, you can't say that. You have to deal with this another way. Why is he doing what he's doing? Why is he enduring? Why does he work all night and then get up and, and, and labor amongst the Christians all day? Why is it that he's not taking a dime from anyone and yet he's pouring his life into these people and he was forcing the observers to look into his life and ask themselves the question, why is he living this way? And for you and I, when we choose the abstaining side on gray issues, even though we have the liberty, it forces those that are close to us in our lives that do not yet know Christ to deal with the issue and ask themselves the question, why aren't you doing these things, even if you have the freedom and the ability to do them? And the answer is, because I'm being an example for the preservation of the reputation of the gospel. And Paul says, that to me is of infinitely greater value than the fleeting pleasure of indulging in some of the things that this world gives he says, for though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself servant unto all that I might gain the more. And unto the Jews, I became as a Jew. When he was in Jerusalem, he took a vow. It was a useless vow, but he did it. He did it so that he might gain the Jews. To them that are under the law, I became as under the law that I might gain them that are under the law. To them that are without law, as without law, being not without law to God, but under the law to Christ. In other words, I didn't sin when I was amongst the unbelievers, but I assimilated with them and worked alongside of them. Why? So that I might gain them, win them that are without law. To the weak, I became as weak, that I might gain the weak. I am made all things to all men, that I might by all means save some." He says, my mindset is that I'm going to make myself a servant to Jews, to the lawless, to the weak. I will become all things to all for the sake of the gospel and winning them to Jesus Christ. And so Paul gives reason in this. So as we close for the night, musicians can come and we'll conclude Paul's uh, discussion on this next week in very incredible passage uh, in the rest of nine and then through 10. But as we close, what's the application if we were to uh, encapsulate it into just a couple of sentences? Number one is this, is that we must, as Christians in our day, we must constantly look out for the weaker brother. That we must be aware that not everyone is, mature, is as mature as us in Christ. And it is possible for our liberty in things to become a stumbling block to someone else. What does that mean? What does that look like? You might see someone who claims Christ that's wearing a rosary around their neck. And they've maybe moved on from uh, some of the deadness of Catholicism. Um, maybe they still even go to church there. They prefer that liturgy or whatever it is. Um, and, and we see that. And we, being further along than them, we understand the vanity uh, of what that is symbolically. Uh, and so we feel that we might have the authority to, to challenge them on that and, and, and say, you know, you wearing that rosary is an affront to God or that, that's an offense or that's useless or that means nothing. And it's possible in doing that to really seriously stumble someone who God is nursing along and bringing, bringing in, into their relationship with Jesus Christ. You do the same thing with something else. You get someone who maybe listens to Joel Olstein and just really, really gets a lot out of uh, out of listening to that, you know, and I'm not necessarily putting him down. Um, he's definitely not my flavor on things. Uh, I'm going down a rabbit trail that's going to be real hard to back out of if I don't, <laughs> if I don't change course here kind of quickly. But here's my point is not to, um, not to throw names around or, or cast shadows on anybody, but here's, here's the issue when it comes to that and the weaker brother. 
is that I might know, being one who's, who's been walking with the Lord for a while now and one who knows his word, where the errors are in some of those things. But someone who's not maybe that far along as I am, they listen to some of those sermons or they maybe have a relic or something around their neck. And, and to them, there's a real attachment there. That, that something in that has touched their life and, and has inspired them to go deeper and to know God in a greater way. And, and when I come as a more mature person that knows that that's a useless thing and that they don't need that, and I say to that person, you shouldn't do that, then what I'm doing is I'm stumbling that person and I'm showing a real lack of love. It's, a, it's an incredible lack of wisdom on my part to be doing that. Uh, illustration I often use. I remember when I was a child and I went skiing for the very first time. And uh, they brought us up this bunny hill, and the first thing the ski instructor said to us is, hand over your poles. And I said, why? And they said, because you don't need them. They don't do anything for you in the skiing process. They are completely irrelevant when it comes to the skills of skiing, so hand them over. And I said, no. And they said, but you don't need them. And I said, oh, yes, I do. Because I'm wearing two blades and I'm on a slippery hill and I need these things and I'm not giving them to you. And please, no, I'm not giving you my poles. Now, I learned to ski eventually and I realized after a while that I didn't actually need those poles, that the ski instructor was right, that they are useless. They serve a purpose. Maybe if you fall down or whatever, or if someone's really bothering you and you, you know, they, they, you can do something with them, but you do not need them for the sake of skiing but I needed them at that point in my development as a skier. And there are a lot of things that a lot of people ascribe to and hold on to that are completely useless in the grand scheme of the Christian walk in life. But to them, they're not useless yet, and they need them. And for you and I to say, hand over the ski poles, not only are they not going to hand over the ski poles, and they're going to avoid you like the plague, but you could stumble them seriously in their walk with God, and you could hinder them. And Paul would say, be very careful the way that you deal with people that are not as mature as you. There are weaker Christians, maybe, than you yourself. And it's better to operate in an attitude of love and patience than it is for you to operate out of a position of knowledge and doctrine. And that's an important lesson that we need to learn as Christians. And here's what I've learned, is that man will not give me his poles but he will give them to God when God prepares that person to give up those poles. So give place for people to give up the poles. Number two is that we must be ever conscious that we represent the gospel and that our behavior can either malign or lift up the reputation of the gospel. And in a world that's hostile towards the gospel, you and I as Christians are called to live our lives in a way that removes people's excuses against it whenever and wherever we can. And that means that sometimes we might have liberty to do something, but we're not to do it. And it's for the sake of someone else. And then number three, and finally, the Holy Spirit of God has been given and he is committed to making us into what Jesus wants us to be. And he's very good at it. He knows how to do it. Jesus has an advocate. It's like Jesus' personal secretary. Not to be irreverent, but that's what Jesus said. He said that the Spirit, when he comes, he will take of mine and he will show it to you and he will point you to me. And so what the Holy Spirit does is he searches our hearts and he sees those things in our life that are not right and then he gently moves us into a place of submission and obedience and a yielding up of those things. He doesn't grab and take them by force. He waits for us patiently to be ready to lay down the things that God wants us to lay down. And then we lay them down, and he takes them, and he fills that area of our life with Christ in a greater way, and we're blessed and enriched by it. But because the Holy Spirit is committed to doing that in every believer's life, it means that you and I are free from seeking to conform others into the image of Christ. You don't have to do that. God knows how to do that. You are now free to just love. You're free to accept. You're free to encourage and build up, to serve and give place for God to do 
His work within their lives. The Holy Spirit is a much more effective Holy Spirit than I am and that you are. And so God says, listen, live by the law of love. If God has a hold of someone's heart, then they're going to figure it out. They're going to come into that place where they're on the right side of God as it concerns the gray areas in their life. Next week, Paul's going to give us two more reasons why gray matter matters matter. Father, we thank you tonight, Lord, as we ponder this text and these things. And we ask you, Lord, that you would help us as believers to navigate through the things that you've given for us. So help us, Lord. Forgive us where we've erred and fallen short. And help us to ever be mindful of the place that you've called us to serve in other people's lives and our own convictions before you. Thank you, Father, for your word. And it's in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.